Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read these passages and we look at them together. We pray that you'll help us understand what it means to us, because we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're coming today to the second of uh, our brief looks at Christmas in the Old Testament. Last week we looked at Genesis. If you remember, John talked about um, promises given to Abraham. This time we're looking at the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah has got a claim to fame in that of all the books written in the Old Testament, it's quoted from more than any other in the New Testament. I don't recommend you do this, but various people have gone through the whole of the New Testament and made a note of every time that the the Old Testament prophets are quoted from. And there were in the region of 50 quotes from the book of Isaiah. I don't know which prophet you think would come next, But you're probably wrong, because the answer is actually Zechariah. Not the Zechariah that uh, joined in our service earlier on, but the prophet named Isaiah. He had about half a dozen quotes. So compared with Isaiah's 50, that gives an idea of the esteem with which the book of Isaiah was kept in those days. There's some debate as to whether the book's written by one man or several, because the covers such a large period, long period. Uh, I don't want to get involved in that one today. Just to say that the first 39 chapters relate to the period before the Babylonian exile and are attributed to a man named Isaiah who was called to service in the year that uh, King Uzziah of Judah died. Now let's see what's happening in the passage from chapter 7 of Isaiah. It's around 735 B.C., although the people of the time didn't know that, uh, and we're in the Middle East. I, th- I think it's helpful to have a look at the map of, of the Middle East at the time. Have we got a map? Sorry, it's not showing at the back, that's all right. Uh, the nation of Israel had by that time been split into two, 200 years earlier. The northern part was still called Israel, although it's sometimes referred to as Ephraim. The southern part was Judah, with its capital, Jerusalem. Another country slightly to the east was Syria, sometimes known as Aram. And then in the top right-hand corner, we've got the edge of that vast country of Assyria. And Assyria was an aggressive country, and it was seeking to expand its empire. And not unnaturally, Israel and Syria... Uh, deduced that they were both too small to protect themselves from the might of Assyria, and they thought it would be a good idea uh, if they got together and decided to suggest to Judah 
that those three countries form a coalition to help defend themselves. Sounds quite a good idea, really, but Ahaz, the king of Judah, won't agree to this. Whether it's because he's too proud or whether he thinks he might be wiser to align himself to the Assyrians, we don't know. But Israel and Syria decided or assumed that he favored the Assyrians, and so they had decided to attack Judah. Now, that's where Isaiah comes into it. God tells Isaiah to go to King Ahaz and tell him to stand firm. Israel and Syria won't be able to get the better of him. He says that they're just two smoldering stubs of firewood. In other words, there's a lot of smoke, but no fire. And Ahaz is told by God to ask him for a sign that he'll be okay. In other words, come on, Ahaz, ask me to prove it. But Ahaz won't. He's not going to put God to the test. But Isaiah tells Ahaz he's going to get a sign anyway, and the sign was the verse that we probably know so well. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which as we know means God with us. Well, we'll come back to that verse in a moment, but just to note that Isaiah prophesies that before this boy knows enough to choose what's right and reject the wrong, the lands of Israel and Syria will have been laid waste by the Assyrians. And this is indeed what happened. And the Assyrians settled foreign colonies in Israel, and there was a certain amount of interbreeding with those Israelites that remained in Israel, and that led to the start of the, the Samaritans. But that's a, a story for another day. But who are the virgin and the child that Isaiah is writing about? Well, you might say, I know, it's Jesus. But I might respectfully ask you to uh, have a look again. Isaiah's talking about something that's going to happen in the near future. And the first thing we need to observe is that the virgin written here doesn't mean virgin in the sense that we might understand it. That is, a woman who hasn't had sexual intercourse. There was a Hebrew word, betula, that meant just that. But that's not the word used here. The Hebrew word used here is alma, which literally meant a young woman of marriable age. But who was this woman? Well, we don't know, to be fair. There's a, there's a certain amount of speculation, but the favorite seems to be a lady mentioned at the beginning of chapter 8, who was Isaiah's second wife. And she gave birth to a son called Maharshalal Hashbaz. It's a lovely name, that, isn't it? Maharshalal Hashbaz. It did cause him, though, quite a problem when he came to uh, complete his passport application form. I know that. But, uh, but why was he referred to as Emmanuel in God's sign? Because God wanted to get the message across to Ahaz, stand firm, because when this baby is born, it will be a reminder that God is with us. On his own, Ahaz stood no chance against the combined forces of Israel and Syria, but if God was with him, he would be strong. And he was for a time, but unfortunately, uh, Ahaz didn't trust in God in the way that Isaiah did, and by looking for the, to the Assyrians for help, he became very subservient to them, and he went and followed other gods, and at one point even sacrificed one of his own sons as a burnt offering to assuage the anger of the gods. 
and he was later overrun by the Assyrians. Well, that, that was Ahaz. Let's just move on now a few hundred years for a moment, because in the second century BC, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And when it was translated, the word Alma, a young woman of marriable age, was actually translated Parthenos, which was the Greek word for virgin in the sense that we might understand it. So when Matthew was reading from the book of Isaiah, presumably in Greek, and seeing this verse, he would have thought this just completely describes the birth of Jesus. He was born of a virgin. She was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit coming on her, not by having intercourse with John. And he, Jesus, is very clearly the Son of God. How incredible. And this caused him to write, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, why did Jesus come to Palestine 2,000 years ago to be with us? In that same passage from Matthew, the angel told Joseph, she'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He came to this world because he wanted people to be saved from the natural consequence of their sin, which was death, separation from God eternally, and instead they could have eternal life with him. And these two passages about Ahaz in in Isaiah 7 and Matthew's Gospel about Jesus teach us an important lesson. And that is that prophecy can have a, more than one fulfillment. It can have a fulfillment in the present and it can have a fulfillment in the future. It was relevant to Ahaz. God was going to be with him in his conflict with the Israelites and the Syrians. And God was going to be with the disciples during Jesus' earthly life as he healed and he taught and, and cared for the people of the time. But above all, of course, he died on the cross so that we could have that eternal life with him. But it didn't stop there. We're not expected to read those two passages to say, and say, weren't those people lucky in those days to have God with them? Because God is with us today. At the time of the ascension, when Jesus was about to return to heaven, he said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Always. I'm with you always. And at Pentecost he sent his spirit so that we can be aware of his presence in our lives now. So God is with us, is relevant to us now. He's with us all the time, caring about us, wanting to lead us and guide us. I don't know if you've got fed up recently with making phone calls to organisations and you have to wait 10, 20, 30 minutes or more before anybody answers. You are, of course, immensely comforted by the reassuring message that your call is important to us. But you think, well, not important enough. But God is there, ready now to listen to whatever we have to say. He understands every aspect of our life. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry. 
He knows what it's like to be abused for be doing right. He knows what it's like to suffer loss. He knows what it's like to be deserted by friends. He knows what it's like to suffer a miscarriage of justice. He knows what it's like to suffer pain. Most of us would be indignant if we had to suffer a fraction of what he suffered. But he promises not necessarily to take away our suffering, but to be with us when we suffer. He understands because he's been there ahead of us. You know, I think sometimes we have the greatest difficulty remembering that God is with us when we're doing our day-to-day activity. I'm going to be quite honest with you. I've got absolutely no difficulty acknowledging that God knows more than I do about nuclear physics, vaccines, the working of the combustion engine, politics, and washing machines. But having trained as an accountant, whenever I was struggling with accountancy issues, I was somehow, it was somehow more difficult to remember that God was there with me and knew much more than I did about how to solve the problem. I'm glad I learned that lesson because I don't honestly think I would have survived otherwise. I do love that story of, of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. The disciples had been out all night on fishing boats and had caught nothing. And Jesus was with them on the shore. And Jesus called out, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. And they did. And the catch was so big that they couldn't haul it all in. Do you know what I find so inspiring about that story? The disciples returned to fishing. No, no, they had to do something. It was an entirely logical thing to do. That they caught no fish through the night. No, that happened from time to time. That they caught a huge mass of fish when Jesus told them to. Well, no, because we know that he performed many miracles. Now, what I find so inspiring is that the disciples didn't say to Jesus, look, you're the preacher, we're the fishermen. Leave the fishing to us. They had long since learned that Jesus knew more about fishing than they did. God is with us in every aspect of our life. We can't probably, in all honesty, consider the subject of God with us without recognizing that there may be times when things aren't going well and we can't feel him close to us. It's at times like this when we need to recognize that God with us is a fact and not necessarily a feeling. Sometimes things aren't going for us. Maybe God's done lots of things through us and it's all gone swimmingly. And then we're overcome by a sort of spiritual blankness, a remoteness. Maybe we're overwhelmed by a feeling of despair. Well, some great and godly people have felt like this in the, t- in the past. Some of the psalmists felt like it. I mean, remember Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John of the Cross in the Middle Ages described these times as the dark night of the soul. And we can all remember, we can all feel like that, but we need to remember that God with us is a fact, even if it's not a feeling 
But we do need to recognize that sometimes when we're feeling remote from God, that might be due to something that we can actually do something about. It might be due to unconfessed sin. Sin creates a barrier between us and God, and if we hang on to our sins, we can't look God in the eye because we don't want him to see in our heart. Maybe we're not being obedient to what he wants us to do. Maybe we feel that God is calling us to do something, but we're not at all keen on doing it, and so we shut God out. Maybe we've got other gods. The rich young ruler would have gone along with Jesus, but his heart was somewhere else. If other things are more important to us than God is, it's not surprising if we lose that sense of God being with us. Sometimes we're just too busy. I know we're living in a world where busyness is seen to be a virtue. It's, it's the only way to get on. But the reality is that if we're so busy, it stops us recognizing God being with us. Then there's something seriously wrong, and we need to change things. <clears throat> so several reasons why we not, might not be feeling God with us, but... There may be one other reason why we're not conscious of God being with us today, and it may be that you've never taken that first step of asking God to come into your life. In the book of Revelation, John has a vision of a church saying to a way, John, a vision of God saying to a wayward church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. I will come in. It's a promise given to anyone there. If you open the door, I will come in. I wonder if you're aware of God being with you, because he wants to be, if you let him. Well, if you'd like to explore what having Jesus in your life means more than uh, you can in the church service, you'd like to go into it in more detail, then in the new year we're going to be running an Alpha course. The great thing about Alpha courses is, is that you don't need to know very much at all before you go, and you can ask any question you like, however silly you might feel in doing so. And it's a tremendous opportunity to do that, and we're going to be running this course in, in, in January, starting in January, and John's going to be giving us more details in later weeks. Uh, but please have a word with John if you'd like to get signed up early. It's a tremendous recommendation. God with us. God with us. How fortunate we are that the Watney sisters, when they endowed this area with this church, they named it Emmanuel, because we've got that permanent reminder that God is with us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.